This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Lloyd Shaker Mosby, outfielder for the Blue Jays, card number 565. But before we get to Lloyd, we do have some follow-up from previous episodes. Last week, we talked about Dan Pasqua. We got something we've never gotten before, so I figured I would address it. A note on Spotify? I don't know how you comment on Spotify. How does that even work? (laughs) I don't know. I never used it as a social media platform. Did the note come in like through a musical telegram or? <laughs> yeah, Joe Rogan read it out to me. <laughs> it was uh, from Adam P who sent us a note on Spotify. I don't, again, don't know how that works, but it was a very nice note, complimented the podcast, and he said he always enjoyed Danny P's last name. Presumably Adam P maybe shares a name with uh, Dan Pasqua. He said, could you guys give me a statistical comparison for him with the Cubs in that era? And he suggested a couple. He suggested O. Henry Rodriguez or Glen Allen Hill, and then closed by saying cheers and go Cubs. And I think that's a great question. We didn't really get into Dan Pasqua's comparisons. Glen Allen Hill was a good suggestion. He's a 15 to 20 home run guy, maybe a better hitter for average than Dan Pasqua, but both ended their careers with a 112 OPS+. Plus. Henry Rodriguez was a much better hitter than Dan Pasqua. I think he was a more of a 30 home run hitter and had more complete seasons than Pasqua. I thought of Keith Moreland from the 80s Cubs, another guy with 15 to 20 home run power, not an outfielder, but similar power to Dan Pasqua. But Moreland frequently was a 300 hitter where Pasqua was more in the in the 220s sometimes. The top similarity on baseball reference was Nick Asaski, who we discussed recently. There was a Cub on that list. Fourth is Jorge Soler. Unlike Pasqua, Soler actually won a home run title, hitting 48 home runs with the, with the Kansas City Royals a couple years back. But I did find an odd comparison. On Facebook, somebody responded to our Dan Pasqua post where I said that Sports Illustrated had suggested Pasqua would win the home run title. And this person offhandedly suggested this would be like Sports Illustrated predicting that Bobby Witt Jr. would win a home run title. And when I looked at Bobby Witt Jr.'s stats, he has one season in the majors with 20 home runs, which was also Dan Pasqua's career high. His career high in the minors of home runs was 33, the same as Dan Pasqua. So the Mm. Dan Pasqua-Bobby Witt Jr. comparison... I bet that the Royals hope that Bobby Witt Jr. turns out a little bit better than Dan Pasqua, but both similarly high prospect for their respective teams. So the Bobby Witt Jr. Dan Pasqua comparison is one I did not anticipate. That's excellent. So thank you, Adam P., for reaching out to us on Spotify. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Or you can email us anytime at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to this week's card in Lloyd Mosby. And why are we talking about Lloyd this week? This might have been the first requested card. And here we are now going on three years into the podcast. So thank you to early friend of the show, John in Springfield, for this suggestion way back in 2020. John's suggestion was based on a very memorable Lloyd Mosby blooper. I'm sorry for the delay. There is no Saber bio with Lloyd. So sometimes that ends up pushing a guy further down the list but hopefully we avoid any factual bloopers. 
Lloyd Mosby was one of the early Blue Jay success stories, along with Dave Steve and Damaso Garcia. Lloyd was an early star, and the Blue Jays really put their trust in him because they didn't really have any other choice. He was a top prospect, and they were a bad team. All the makings of a great episode, though, so let's go to the front of 565. And we've got Lloyd Mosby in what, David, in, in what you noted as a classic card pose, but I have to say is an extremely uncomfortable-looking pose. You have Lloyd down on one knee on a way to doing a lizard pose, but with your back arm raised up very high in a chicken wing kind of formation while holding on to a baseball bat. This looks extremely uncomfortable. It's stretching at least three major joints. I just don't know. But he's but Lloyd's got a great smile while while doing this extremely aggressive yoga pose. Good smile, good mustache. It has this casual air about it of, hey, I'm just resting my arm on this bat. But that is not <laughs> a comfortable look. His hand is up by his armpit. That's not where you rest your hand. Yeah. He has sweatbands on. We can't tell what's on them, but they're white sweatbands. This is a possible MIMS band situation. You can see some kind of patch on the bottom of it, but that's a large wristband. Franklin batting gloves. The Blue Jays training top, this mesh training top. This is a similar pose to the Sean Dunstan and Spanky Lavalier angle, but this is a much closer in shot than those two cards. And I have to make a shocking admission on the Fred McGriff episode art that I made that I use on Instagram. I used a newer version of the Blue Jays logo and somebody called me out on it. Ooh. And they said, this is not a period specific Blue Jays logo. This is a 2012 <laughs> Blue Jays logo. So I, you know, mea culpa, shocking admission. I, I made a mistake with the logo because I was lazy, not malicious. <laughs> The original logo as seen here on Lloyd's card is more rounded. You can see a rounded beak, a circular eye, lighter blue on the top of the head. The maple leaf on this is up higher, almost like it's a, a little flower in the Blue Jays hair. That logo was used from 1977 to 96. I think we've discussed the Blue Jays logo history before. They then went to a muscly bird and then moved back to something similar to this, but more sleek and pointed in 2012. Having just gone to an anthropology museum, I'm thoroughly offended at the misplacement in history of this artifact. But geologically speaking, I got mm, it. That is absolutely true. So would you say this is a classical, a pre-classical, or a post-classical look for Moid? This is classical, from the early Blue Jays period. I have to agree. Let's go to the back of 565. And we have Lloyd Mosby, six foot three, 200 pounds, left-handed batter, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Blue Jays in the first round of 1978, born November 5th, 1959 in Portland, Arkansas, with a home in St. Petersburg, Florida. The name Lloyd until the 1940s was regularly in the top 60 to 100 names. It fell off a bit in popularity and in 2022, and in 2002, it was the 994th most popular name. That was the last time it was in the top 1,000. We have one other Lloyd in the set. That's Lloyd McClendon. Matt, you got any famous Lloyds for me? I have a uh, Dobbler. Yeah, Christmas. Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber. Well, Bridges, of course, is probably the most famous. Yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright. So that, that might be a last name. Lloyd Banks from G-Unit. 
Sabrina Lloyd, who was on uh, Sports Night. Yes, and that's probably Christopher Lloyd's daughter. Probably. I feel like I had a long list of Lloyds, long list of Lloyds, but Lloyd Mosby, one of two in our set. He was born in Portland, Arkansas. However, his family moved to Oakland when he was nine. And during the great migration of African-Americans between the 1910s and 1970s, there were a few common routes that were taken. Some of the first waves went from places like Mississippi to Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee, from Alabama to Cleveland and Detroit from Georgia up the Atlantic coast to New York, Massachusetts. That's the early waves. In the later waves of migrations, African-Americans moved from places like Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi out west, often to Los Angeles, Oakland, Seattle. Another family that moved west in a similar route to Lloyd Mosby was the family of the Henleys, as in Ricky Nelson Henley, whose mother moved from Chicago back home to Arkansas, and then from Arkansas to Oakland. And in the process, she married a man with the last name of Henderson. And so Ricky Henderson, while born in Chicago, moved to Arkansas and then was raised in Oakland in the Bay Area. Similarly, Bill Russell's family moved from Louisiana, Joe Morgan and Frank Robinson from Texas, all of those families moving from the South out to Oakland, and many more. And that led to a big boom in the 60s, 70s, and 80s of athletes from the Bay Area, particularly from Oakland. As a kid, Lloyd was much more interested in basketball than baseball. He always told his mom that he was going to repay her whatever she bought for him. If it was a brand new pair of shoes, a new basketball, he was going to pay her back when he made the NBA, a promise that I'm sure we've all made to our parents at some time. Some of us maybe with a little bit more truth behind that statement (laughs) and the ability to carry out that statement. Lloyd was a very good basketball player. His elusive abilities on the basketball court got him the sweet nickname of Shaker. And he's quoted as saying, shake and bake is better than frying, right? So (laughs) Shaker Mosby, as he is well known and was well known by Blue Jays fans throughout the 80s. That's where he got it, not from anything on the baseball field, although he was also elusive on the base paths. That was more a basketball nickname. He went to Oakland High School, the sixth oldest high school in California, which has an impressive and extensive alumni list, including Jack London, known for Wolves and his square in Oakland. Dudley Manlove, who was in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Author Gertrude Stein. Don Robinson, a member of En Vogue who was never married to Glenn Braggs. David Carradine of Kung Fu. Sheila E., 1958 American League MVP Jackie Jensen. Blazers star Damian Lillard. And Boots Riley, director of Sorry to Bother You, among many artistic endeavors. I think Edwin Meese was also on that list. He, He didn't make the cut, though. As a sophomore, Shaker was convinced to give baseball a try, and he credited his baseball coach with keeping him in class, out of trouble, and on a path to college. He was recruited by 75 universities to play college basketball, and he was also a very good student. As he was approaching graduation, he expected to enroll and play Division I basketball at St. Mary's College, but then we have a this way to the clubhouse. And that's that Lloyd signed as a first-round draft selection with the Blue Jays, June 6, 1978, by scout Wayne Morgan. Lloyd was the first pick for the Blue Jays, but second overall behind Bob Horner. And Bob Horner had just won the Golden Spikes, so Lloyd was a really highly thought-of player coming out of high school. Wayne Morgan is a Canadian himself from Kindersley, Saskatchewan. He was a pitcher in the Astros organization in the late 60s, scouted for the Expos, then the Astros under Pat Gillick. And while with the Astros, he discovered Terry Poole, 
Gillick then moved to the Yankees. Morgan followed him and signed Willie McGee. Then when Gillick joined the Blue Jays in 1978, Morgan was the scout on the West Coast. So this was his first draft and his first first round pick. Pretty impressive Morgan list of scouted players includes John Olerud, Mark Eichhorn, David Wells, Dave Steeb. And he had to sign Shaker to convince him not to chase his hoop dreams. Lloyd was an A's fan growing up and didn't really know that the Blue Jays were a thing. They were a brand new team. And Shaker said, I won't say I was disappointed because I was just happy to get drafted, but I didn't know who the Blue Jays were. And in fact, since moving from Arkansas when he was a kid, Lloyd had never been out of Oakland. But as he had told his mom for so many years, he wanted to go pro to support her and to pay her back for all of the things that she had worked so hard to give him. So he just wanted to make sure that he had a bonus big enough to build his mama house. And it was a different time, so a $55,000 signing bonus was enough for Lloyd to accomplish that. He might have been able to get a little bit more because there were lower picks in this draft, including other guys out of high school who got 100000 And those teams had to pay up to convince players not to go to college. But Lloyd wanted to get out of Oakland, wanted to get his mama house. And so he signed that $55,000 signing bonus and was off to rookie ball. But first, a trip to Toronto. Right after signing, Lloyd visited Toronto as the first-round pick, and he made a lifelong friend in Paul Beeston. Recently, Mosby told the story, Mr. Beeston gave my mom $5,000 cash to go shopping, Mosby said. I fell in love with the guy. Remember, my mom had never touched or ever seen $1,000 in cash. They loved me first because they showed respect to my family. It could have been because of baseball, yes, but it's now evolved into something great. And Beeston, when reached for comment, clarified, it was $5,000 Canadian. I haven't looked up the Canadian to U.S. dollars conversion rate in 1978, but it was still a very kind gesture, something that clearly Lloyd cared a lot about his mom and her happiness, and the Blue Jays were able to... uh, have a lifelong friend in Lloyd by making his mother happy. So he's off to Medicine Hat, Alberta. Medicine Hat inherited its name from the First Nations word Samus, which means medicine man's hat. Lloyd had never been anywhere like that. He lived in Arkansas and Oakland only, so this was a big change for him. The owner of the team, Bill Ewell, sent a helicopter from Medicine Hat to Calgary to pick him up. And staying in Medicine Hat, Lloyd said, I look out my window and I hear some noise. There were people with cows and horses in a parade. I'm like, what the hell? Lloyd said it was like a Western movie. He'd never seen people riding horses in their day-to-day life. According to Alberta dugout stories, this was likely the annual Medicine Hat stampede. And aside from that initial shock, Lloyd enjoyed his time in Medicine Hat and in Canada generally. He said, from that point on, I've been a Canadian. I just loved it. I love Toronto and all the places I've had stops in. Generally, he got along with the fans. There were some folks who would boo if he made an error, and he said he'd never been booed before, so encountering that was a bit of a shock. He also said on the road he sometimes encountered racial abuse, and he was far from home from the first time in his life, and he spent a lot of time on the phone with his mom. That was something else that he appreciated about the Blue Jays organization, that his managers, his general managers, would take him in and let him call his mom from the team phone, from their office. And when he was feeling lonely, he had a connection back home, even though he was far away. He made the all-star team in rookie ball with a 304 average and 20 steals in 67 games. Got moved up in 1979 to Dunedin at single A. 
Hit 332, 18 home runs, six triples, 16 steals, and an OPS of 956. He skipped double A and went straight to triple A in 1980, hit 322 through 37 games. And although he was only 20, they figured that's enough. Let's call him up to the big league. So on May 24th, he played his first game against the Yankees and Luis Tiant. He got his first hit, a double in his second at bat, hit a homer in his second game and another one in his fourth game, went seven for 17 in his first four games. But then he fell back to earth by midsummer. He's hitting in the 220s where he would remain through the end of the season. He hit nine home runs, only had four steals, so his space running wasn't quite there yet. And the Blue Jays were bad, so it didn't matter. They would lose 95 games. Buck Martinez said he was an overmatched young kid. Ordinarily, an organization would keep him in the minors for three years, but we were going to finish in last place with him or without him. So why not let him learn in the majors? Not a bad idea, really, to to give him the major league experience. And those next couple of seasons, the lines on the card look pretty similar to that first one. He had nine home runs each year for each of his first three seasons. Averages of 233 and 236, 11 steals both seasons, an OPS plus of 78 and 75. And again, the Blue Jays finished last in both seasons anyway. But in 1982, they crept closer to 500. And in 1983, everything clicked for Lloyd. Cito Gaston would go on to be the Blue Jays manager of their World Series winning teams. But at this point, he was in his second year as the Blue Jays hitting coach. And Lloyd credited Cito with his success. He would allow you to fail. Then he would ask you, what do you think about this? I had some stances that were not very good, and I was kind of a hard-headed kid, Lloyd said. When Cito came over, that's when my talent really came up, because he simplified what I needed to do. Lloyd also went to a lighter bat and dropped his hands lower in his stance. And it also helped that there were other good offensive players on the Blue Jays to protect him in the lineup. Damaso Garcia hit over 300 for the second straight season in 1983. Jesse Barfield, who was also 23 years old and joined Lloyd in the outfield, hit 27 home runs. Willie Upshaw, Cliff Johnson both had over 20 home runs. So they have a a much better lineup. They're just an overall better team. They won 89 games, their first season over 500, and the first in a streak of winning seasons that would go straight through to the 1993 World Series. While they finished over 500, they finished in fourth place, but a good year for the team and a good start to a run of success. And Lloyd had a terrific season himself with a 315, 376, 499 slash line. He scored 104 runs, becoming the first Jay to score 100 runs in a season, hit 18 home runs and stole 27 bases. And it's funny looking at the back of the car, just what a jump this is from 1982 to 1983. That work with the hitting coach really seemed to pay off. He was fifth in runs scored and sixth in batting average in the entire American League and had a then-team record 21-game hitting streak. This was a season worth six war, which was good for 10th in the American League. He won the Silver Slugger and received some MVP votes. Real validation after a few years of struggling and some of the Jays fans had questioned whether he was going to end up panning out But Lloyd believed in himself. And as he said, he was finally able to say, I told you so. And after that breakout season, he got a big contract. He signed a five-year deal worth $3 million. He said, I've never been a money man, but now that I've got some security, I'm going to build my mom a new home back in Arkansas. I don't ever want her to worry about where her next check is coming from. 
That's a great son. Good job, Lloyd. 1984, a fantastic follow-up for him. We've got some black ink on the back of the card with 15 triples. He hit 280 average, 368 on base, and 470 slugging. That's a 127 OPS plus. 39 stolen bases as well. Starting a streak of several years in a row, over 30 stolen bases. Scored 97 runs and drove in 92. Bill James said of Lloyd, his strengths were hitting for power, hitting for average, range, throwing, base running, patience as a hitter, weaknesses, none. Bill James also thought that Lloyd would win an MVP award in his career. That didn't quite play out. Lloyd was close in terms of wins above replacement in 1984. He was valued at a career-high 7.3, which is near MVP territory. That's third in the American League, second among position players. He did get some MVP votes, but finished 22nd. The Jays won 89 games again, but finished 15 games behind Detroit this time. 1985 was a historic season for the Blue Jays, helped by the fact that they had one of the best outfields in baseball All playing for a full season together. Jesse Barfield in right, Lloyd Mosby in center, and George Bell in left. Very creatively, they were called the Killer Bees. Since two of the three of them had bees in their name and Lloyd Mosby ends in a bee. Clever. No one has ever been called the Killer Bees in baseball ever again. Ever before or ever since. Barfield and Bell hit 27 and 28 home runs respectively and both stole 20 bases. Lloyd wasn't quite as productive as he was in 1984, but it was still a solid year for him. He hit leadoff, and although he hit only 259 average, he had 18 home runs and stole 37 bases. That Blue Jays team was up as many as nine games in the month of August, but lost a three-game series to the Tigers the first week of October that left them only two games clear of the Yankees with the pinstripes in town at the end of the season. So if the Yankees sweep that series in Toronto, they would win the AL East. First game of the series, a 3-2 lead, turned over to the Terminator, Tom Hankey, in the ninth inning. He gets the first two outs. Toronto's ready to celebrate. Yankee catcher Butch Winnegar hits a home run, tying the game. A single, a walk, and a Lloyd Mosby error lead to the Blue Jays, losing a 4-3 stunner. The next day, up 1-0, Lloyd and Willie Upshaw hit back-to-back home runs, and the Blue Jays win 5-1 to to clinch it. They end up losing the last game, so they really did need that win. They go to the playoffs to face Kansas City. Toronto wins the first two games at home, and Lloyd was a big part of those wins. In Game 2, he went 2-for-5 with an RBI, two runs, including the game winner in the 10th inning. And in Game 3, he was picked off first base in controversial fashion. If you watch the replay... He actually wasn't picked off. It was a bad call, and he got his hand into first base first. Almost got himself thrown out of the game. The Blue Jays end up losing game three. They win game four at Kansas City, and Lloyd had a run in an RBI in that game. The Blue Jays lost game five in Kansas City. They come back home to Toronto. They need one win in the final two games, and they end up losing both games six and seven. But at least in game six, Lloyd can't be blamed for that loss. He went three for four with a run in an RBI in a five to three loss. Overall, he had an inconsistent series at the plate, hitting only 226, but he did have some highs in that series, scored a team high five runs, and drove in a, a joint team high four RBIs. So Canada has to wait a little bit longer for a World Series. 1986 was another decent year for Lloyd. He hit 21 home runs with 32 steals. 
His OPS plus was right around 100, and his average and on-base percentage were both down from previous years. However, this was his only all-star appearance. He made the team, got a walk, and stole a base in his one-plate appearance. But an even more momentous occasion, David, in 1986, that is Lloyd rapping. This is, I think, a 45, two sides of a 45, so there's two Lloyd Mosby rap songs. One is called Shaker's Rap. Shaker's Rap, a lot of use of Take Me Out to the Ball Game included in that. That's a a highlight of the music that we've heard on this podcast is interpolations of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. The song is four minutes long, and I think two minutes of it is just like random play-by-play. The other is called Stick to It. Stick to It seemed to be about staying in school. Lloyd's rapping, I can't recommend it. I'm sure it was for a good cause. Luckily, all the kids stayed in school. 1987, a bounce back to form for Lloyd. He had career highs in runs, 106. He had 26 home runs, 96 RBIs, and tied his best season ever with 39 steals. He brought his average back up to 282 and his on-base percentage to 358 and an OPS plus of 117. So a really strong season. He also had a low light on August 16th, 1987. And this is a a confounding play against the White Sox. In the first inning of this game, Mosby singles, drives in a run, steals a base, and scores a run. So he's, it's a good start. In the third inning, another single, Ernie Witt comes to the plate, and then this happens. There goes Mosby, picked a good pitch to go on, terrible throw. Mosby doesn't know where the throw is. He's going back to first base. Is he going to steal first? He steals first. Now he's going to steal second again. I've never seen it before. Mosby goes on the pitch. Carlton Fisk makes the worst throw I've ever seen straight to the center fielder, over the, way over the head of Ozzie Guillen. Ozzie Guillen maybe tried to fake Mosby out. But there's no crack of the bat, so I don't know how Mosby thought that the ball was hit to center field. But this throw was so bad that he thought that the center fielder caught the ball, so he had to run back to first to tag up. But the throw to first base by center fielder Kenny Williams, who would go on to be the GM of the White Sox, ends up hitting Lloyd and bouncing away. Greg Walker can't get the ball. So then Lloyd goes back to second. So even though he just ran 270 feet, slid three times, he doesn't get a steal on this play. Oh. He ends up just advancing on an error. He looks very embarrassed. He's looking at his coach and apologizing because he clearly was not paying attention to the third base coach. But Lloyd overcame that embarrassment. He hit a home run later in the game, went three for four with three runs, three RBIs. Ended up being a big day, but sadly, when you search for Lloyd Mosby, one of the top things that comes up is Lloyd stealing second base twice. Later, he was part of history on September 14th of 1987 when he had a home run in which the Jays set the major league record, hitting 10 home runs in one game. Very good year for Lloyd altogether. Uh, However, as we've described many times, a sad year for the Jays at the end of the season as the Detroit Tigers overtook the Jays in the last weekend of the season. But that was not 
Mosby's fault in the final six games, he hit 478 and a 1.278 OPS as the Jays lost all six of the last six games of the season to blow it and the Tigers move on to the playoffs. Yeah, sad end of the season. Not Lloyd's fault. In 1988 and 89, Lloyd missed playing time with leg and back injuries. Perhaps the cumulative effect of playing on the AstroTurf at Exhibition Stadium led to some leg injuries. He hit only 239 with 10 home runs, but he still had 31 steals in 1988. The average dropped even further in 1989 to 221. He was productive in the playoffs in 1989 for the Blue Jays, hitting 313 with a home run and five walks in a five-game series loss to the A's. But this marked the end of Lloyd's contract and a tough way to leave Toronto with a playoff loss and his least productive regular season since 1982. As I said, playing on that turf probably shortened his career, but the Tigers thought that his speed and defensive range would work in the large outfield of Tiger Stadium. Sparky Anderson was looking for a veteran leader, and he liked the way that Lloyd played, and he knew he had been on winning teams. So he signs him to a two-year deal worth $3 million. In his first year as a Tiger, 1990, Mosby's okay. He raises his average a bit to 248, 14 home runs, 51 RBIs. He only had 17 steals, which was also his lowest total since 1982. Looking at these cards from when he's on the Tigers, it just doesn't look right. You picture Lloyd Mosby as a Toronto Blue Jay, and then to see him in the colors of the team that defeated them in 1987, it just doesn't look right, and his career didn't look right at that point. We have this great run of 30 steel seasons, good power, good average, and he just wasn't a complete player by this point. After those two years in Detroit, he signs with the Yomiri Giants in MPB. He had a big first year hitting 306 with 25 home runs in 96 games. But he only had eight steals, so his speed was diminished. After that big first year in 1992, he returns in 1993, but only plays 37 games. Interestingly, he is joined by Jesse Barfield playing in that outfield. Barfield also was in his final season in professional baseball in 1993. Barfield played over 100 games, but Lloyd only made it into 37 games and then called it a career. Yeah, I got to say, he looks better in the Yomiuri Giants uniform than he did in the Tigers, judging by the cards. But closing the book on Lloyd Mosby, 12 seasons in the majors, a 257 average, 169 home runs, 280 stolen bases, 66 triples, and 273 doubles, one Silver Slugger award, one All-Star game, and probably should have won the Gold Glove in 1984 when he was valued at 2.3 defensive war, which was second in the American League. How about in retirement? Shaker was briefly the Blue Jays' first base coach from 1998 to 99. Since 2009, he has been a team ambassador and is involved in youth coaching through the Blue Jays Baseball Academy, and he still spends at least part of his time in Toronto. This was a card requested long ago, David. It took us three years to get to Lloyd Mosby. But now that we've looked at him a little bit more, what do we think? Lloyd Mosby was a good player, and for a couple seasons, he was a great player. All time in Blue Jays history, he is 10th in wins above replacement, 6th among position players. He remains on the Blue Jays leaderboard in all-time games, hits, runs, homers, doubles, triples, and is the all-time club leader in steals. He is also at the top of the list in championship win probability added, which is surprising because the teams that he played on never won titles. 
the team did win titles after he left. So there should have been people adding more win probability in those 90s teams. But he was involved in a lot of important games and important plays for very good teams that just didn't quite make it. So it's surprising to see his name just above actual World Series champion Roberto Alomar on that list of championship win probability added. He is number nine on a Bluebird Banter list of the top 60 Blue Jays. And he was part of that iconic outfield with George Bell and Jesse Barfield. Thank you to Blue Jays fan Diane, who let us know that all three of these guys were born within a couple weeks of each other in 1959. I think Lloyd was born last, but only two weeks after Jesse Barfield and George Bell, who were born in October of 1959. Lloyd ended up staying with the team the longest of all three of those, 10 years, one year more than Barfield and Bell. So he was there from the bad times of the early 80s into the consistently winning solid Blue Jays teams who ended up making the playoffs multiple times in Lloyd's tenure there. Lloyd is in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, and he loves it. He was so excited to be inducted, and he loves being an honorary Canadian. Lloyd said, they made me feel a part of something special. It's just been a tremendous journey. I spend most of my time there. I live in Queens Key in Toronto. I tell people all the time, I'm Canadian in heart. A Canadian not in passport, but in heart. We're really simple people. We're not trying to do anything that's extraordinary because it's an extraordinary country. We already know that. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. And Lloyd really repaid the trust that the team put in him, hitting at the top of two of the best lineups that the Blue Jays have ever had in 1985 and 1987, and being a really solid player for some great Blue Jays teams. And his time and those mid-1980s teams get overshadowed by the early 90s championship winning teams, but... 80s baseball fans know and love Lloyd Mosby and that killer B outfield. Indeed. Also bought his mom two houses. So great guy, great card all the way around and a, and a great story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you've got tickets to the annual Medicine Hat Stampede, we'd love two of them. Just send them to us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. and We'll see you next week.